and find the book of 2 Timothy. This is a short book. It's only four chapters, and they're not long chapters. It wouldn't take you very long at all this evening to sit down and to read 2 Timothy, and so I'd encourage you to do that tonight. We're not going to read all the way through it right now, but we're going to read different sections of it as we work through this passage. Last week I gave you some examples of famous um, mentors and their protégés, and all of that led up to talking about Paul and Timothy, and just telling you that Paul was the mentor and Timothy was the protégé, and Paul trained him and spent time with him and invested in him and equipped him, prepared him for ministry, and to really understand First and Second Timothy, because this is one man writing a letter to another man, you really kind of got to know something about these two guys and the history of their relationship. And so some of these things we talked about last week, I didn't put all this background on your outline like I did last week, but I just want to go over a few of these things quickly. So this is a review if you were here last week, but I just want to remind you of this relationship between Paul and Timothy and what that looked like. Timothy was a native of a town called Lystra. And you can see Lystra right there in what we know as Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Um, That's where he was from. Paul met him on his first missionary journey, and that map you see right there with the squiggly line is his first missionary journey. And then he picked him up and took him with him on his second missionary journey. You can go back and you can read about this in Acts, but let me just remind you about Timothy's first exposure, let's say, to the Apostle Paul, right? He's living in Lystra, and the Bible tells us that his dad is Greek and his mom is Jewish. So he comes from a family that's sort of mixed, a mixed marriage, mixed faith in his parents. Um, we know from, from what Paul writes to Timothy, some of the things he says, that um, whatever his dad did or didn't do in raising him and teaching him about his faith, we do know that his mom, Timothy's mom and his grandma, taught him the Old Testament scriptures. So he grew up at least with that foundation. And one day this guy comes to town, Jewish guy, calls himself a missionary, and his name's Paul. And Paul comes into town, and almost immediately he heals a crippled man. And the town goes completely bonkers crazy. And all these guys, like Timothy's dad, these Greek guys and gals, they think that the Greek gods have come down to visit them. They think that it's Zeus and Hermes, the chief god who healed him, and then the spokesperson who did all the talking. And they think that uh, Paul and his missionary partner Barnabas are these Greek gods come down to them. And they basically start this impromptu parade, and they're celebrating, and they're going to offer sacrifices to these guys. And Paul and Barnabas figure out what's going on, and they say, no, 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 we're not gods, we're just men. You should not, should not worship us. And they start to preach the gospel, and people respond to the gospel. And not too much time goes by, just a little while after that, and a group of, of Jewish guys come into town behind Paul, They've just sort of been trailing him town to town. And they come in and they stir up the Jewish community against Paul, trying to say that he's this false teacher, he's preaching a false gospel, all these things. And they take Paul, they drag him through the streets of Lystra, where Timothy lives, drag him through the streets of Lystra, drag him outside of town, stone him and leave him for dead. They, everybody thinks that Paul is dead. He just got stoned to death. They leave him there. The Bible says when he wakes up, he marches right back into Lystra, where these guys were who did that. That's Timothy's first exposure to Paul. 
He comes to town. He heals a guy. There's this big hubbub and big celebration, and he puts an end to it. He preaches the gospel, dragged through the streets, taken outside of town, stone left for dead. That's his first exposure. Then Paul goes on. You can see the line. He goes on to other towns. Paul and Barnabas finish this trip up, and they get ready to go on a second trip. And Paul and Barnabas say, hey, let's go check on all those churches we started, like the one in Lystra. And they're getting ready to go, and Barnabas wants to take his cousin Mark, and Paul says, I don't want him to go. He bailed on the first trip. Halfway through, he quit. He didn't finish. He didn't keep his commitment. He's a wimp. He's a a loser. We don't need him. I don't want him. I'm not working with that guy. And Barnabas says, well, I'm taking him. So Barnabas and his cousin Mark go on their own mission trip, and Paul takes another group of guys, and they go on a mission trip. And one of the guys he takes when he goes on the second trip to Lystra, he picks up Timothy. And Timothy's going to go with him on this, uh, this second mission trip. Uh, we know that when Paul picked him up, okay, there's been a, a period of time where Paul starts the church and then he comes back on this second trip. By this time, we know Timothy is a believer. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's well spoken of by all the people in the community. Everybody looks up to him and everybody respects this guy. We also know from the New Testament that he was young, He wasn't as seasoned as some of the other religious leaders that he's interacting with. And he was so young, in fact, that some people tended to look down on him and to discourage him in his ministry. And so Paul tried to encourage him in that, uh, told him not to be timid. We know that he had some sort of stomach problem, some sort of health issue. Paul gives him some instructions about how he should handle that. And we also know from the book of Hebrews, last chapter of Hebrews, that at some point, for some reason, Timothy got thrown into prison, and then he eventually got released. We don't know any of the specifics, but we do know that he got thrown into prison. So Timothy, you got these two guys, and they're very, very close friends. And Timothy travels around with Paul on this missionary trip, and Paul's teaching him, and he's training him, and he's setting an example for him, and... He's showing him how to preach sermons. He's showing them uh, how to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. He's showing them and teaching them how to start a church and how to plant churches. All these things, Paul's setting this example for him. And we know that about 64 AD, roughly, they're on this trip. They stop in Ephesus. They've been traveling around. And all of a sudden, Paul looks at Timothy and says, Hey, the rest of us are going, but you're staying. You're going to stay here and be the pastor of this church. And that's a big city, and that was a really important church. But Paul said, you are staying here, and you're going to be the pastor of this church. And so we mentioned this last week. It's a really neat thing that we have a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And we also have two letters that he wrote to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And it's really interesting to read those those things together and to see what Paul emphasized in those letters. Here's what tradition says about the end of Timothy's life. Okay, we don't know that this is true. I mentioned this last week. Um, When he was about 80 years old, he was still preaching. He was still the pastor in Ephesus, and they had a big celebration, a big annual festival for the great goddess there, and they're marching through the streets, and they're having this big celebration, this parade, not unlike what they tried to do with Paul and Barnabas back in Lystra. And Timothy, the guy who struggled with being timid at one point, marches out in the middle of the street, stands in front of the parade, preaches the gospel. They're infuriated that he would disrupt their parade. They take him and they kill him, stone him to death, and he dies preaching the gospel of Jesus. That's tradition, not in the Bible, but that's what tradition says happened. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus all go together. 
And they're known as the pastoral epistles. And they're letters that Paul wrote to pastors, to Timothy and to Titus. And he's just giving them instructions about what he wants these guys to do as pastors in their uh, respective ministries. I showed you this timeline last week, and I'm just going to put it up again so you can kind of get the feel of it. Acts chapter 28, it's the last chapter in Acts. That's about 59 A.D., Okay, so you're now about 30 years out from when Jesus dies on the cross. 59 AD, the book of Acts ends, and Paul is in house arrest in Rome. Okay, house arrest. It was not the worst thing that could happen to you to be under house arrest. You would be placed in a specific home, somebody would put you up, and they would basically say, You can't leave. It's sort of like your trial is pending, and we're just going to let you hang out here. We don't think you're dangerous. We don't think you're going to take off. You just you got to stay here until your trial. And so he's on house arrest. That's where the book of Acts breaks off. A few years later, we piece together from the rest of the New Testament that he's released. And he writes 1 Timothy in the book of Titus in 65 or 66. And then about a year later, he's arrested again and he's sent back to Rome. And we're going to talk about this imprisonment. This was not house arrest. House arrest was not a bad deal. This imprisonment that we're talking about here in 66, 67 was a really bad deal. And I'll show you some pictures in a minute. Um, So in 67, while he's in prison in Rome, he writes the book of 2 Timothy or the letter of 2 Timothy. And then probably that same year, Nero, the emperor, kills Paul. He's martyred for his faith. And then we know from Roman records that about 68 AD, Nero himself died. So that's kind of the timeline of what we're talking about. Traditionally, and this is pretty strong tradition, some church tradition you look back on and you say, eh, I don't know, like the thing about Timothy, I told you tradition says Timothy, that uh, 50-50. Maybe it happened that way, maybe it didn't. We don't really know. When I say church tradition that Paul, in this second imprisonment, was imprisoned in the Mamertine prison in Rome, that's pretty solid church tradition. There's not a lot of people who look at that and say, Oh, that didn't happen. It wasn't that way. This is where we're pretty sure that he was on this second imprisonment. And um, put this first picture up. This is, I'm going to show you some other pictures. Um, But this is just sort of a drawing. That's the same thing, just different artist renderings of what this prison looked like in Paul's day. And on that picture on the left, you can see there's the white bricks on the outside. And it's just sort of a cutaway. Uh, they're putting a hole in the wall. It's not really there, but they're just showing you this is what's on the other side of that wall. And there's a chamber up on that top area, and there's a hole in the ceiling, and that hole up in the top um, goes straight down into another hole in the bottom, and there's a smaller little area down in the bottom. And you can see from the picture on the right about how tall that guy is. Um, That's a short person because my understanding is that bottom chamber is uh, just right at about six feet tall. It's just about as tall as I am from the bottom stones up to the ceiling. So it's not a big area. This is the Mamertine prison in Rome. Anybody been to Rome and been to this prison? Been in it? Some of you have. Did you go in the prison? No. Did you go in the prison? No. Did you go in the prison? Anybody? Carol did? How long ago was that? Before 2009? Okay. So I'm going to show you some pictures. I've never been there. And uh, I got really confused this week because I'm doing this research and I'm pulling these pictures, some online, some from books, and I'm comparing and I'm like, this, this doesn't match up. And finally today I figured out they, um, they did some work on, 
on the prison, some restoration, right? Because this is a very old facility, and they wanted to restore it as much as possible to what it was like in Paul's day, and they had made some changes since then. So some of these pictures look a little bit different. It's all the same place, but they've made a few little changes. So this is the first picture. If you're there in Rome, it looks like this. Um, doesn't look like a prison. looks like a church because on top of it, they built a church. So when you look at this white building in the middle of all that's around it, there's sort of that balcony. Everything above that is a church, and there's a little chapel in there, and um, so you can go to that church. This next picture zooms in on this front gate, and that's up on the top. It says the prison of the apostles Peter and Paul, and tradition says that both apostles ended up in prison in this particular prison before they were martyred for their faith. Um, so the next picture shows if you wanted to go in, you can go visit it. This is right behind that gate. You go down one of these two sets of stairs, and you go into this door. And the next room that you walk into looks something like that. And you see that little yellow bar in each picture? I just put that there so you know that's the same bar in both pictures. It's just looking in different directions. So in this picture, you're looking that way, and then you can turn around, and you see that same bar on your, on your right. So back on that far far wall, you see there's sort of a built-in little cabinet deal, and um, you, can, you can find other pictures of this. There's two busts, two sculptures in there. One is Peter, and one is Paul, back behind there, and there's a little altar. And over on the right, you see there's sort of a rectangular thing on the wall. That's just a, a plaque that lists some of the people that were imprisoned in this particular prison. It wasn't just Peter and Paul, but lots of other guys um, there. You understand when this was a prison, okay, there was no staircase going down to the lower level. That was added much, much later. So real quick, Catherine, go back to that very first uh, picture. Okay? Over on the right, you see the top room, and it's got this sort of uh, semicircular dome right there. And then there's one hole going down to this lower room where the guy's standing. And then there's a smaller hole that goes out. That's not like a manhole to go through. That's more like a spring going out uh, into the sewage system, into the, the river there. So go back to the one we were on, and you can see there's the arch in this upper room, okay, going from left to right. Imagine there's no staircase, and on the picture on the left, at the very bottom, you see that circle? Okay, that's a, a grate, and lots of pictures online of people standing by that grate. They put a big metal thing covering there so dopey tourists don't accidentally fall through it. But in Paul's day, it was just a hole, and you didn't take the stairs down to the lower level. They either dropped you down, or if they were feeling generous, they put a rope around you and lowered you down. But more than likely, they just sort of said, there's the hole, jump in. And uh, originally, when you look at this, you say, man, it's, it's underground, it's all built out of rock, it's almost like it's uh, a cistern. Well, that's what it was, originally. It was originally built to hold water, and when it would flood, the river would back up under that very bottom hole, and it would fill the whole thing up. And so it was originally a cistern converted into a prison. Go to the next picture. This is sort of what you would have seen. Best I can figure, this is pre-restoration. And um, so you see there's some tile on the floor, pretty nice tile work down there. That, they didn't do that for prisoners. That would have been added later after it sort of became a shrine. 
And you see there's a plaque over on the wall, over on the top left, rectangular silver plaque, um, just lists some of the people who were in this prison. The gold, um, I don't know what you call that, relief or little picture there on the wall, is a picture of Peter baptizing the prison guards of this prison. Whether that happened or not, who knows, but that's tradition. While Peter was in prison there, he baptized the guards. And they got a little altar built. And uh, you see the little, looks like a little circle right there. You're down in the lower room, so this is the spring, right? goes out to the river, but then when the river floods, it sort of would back up all the way up. And so if you were a prisoner down in this hole and the floods came up, you were in a world of trouble because it just started filling up. When you look at that altar, do you notice anything strange about it? Cross is upside down because, according to tradition, when Peter was crucified, he said, don't crucify me this way, crucify me this way, because I don't want people to think I am emulating Christ. I want it to be different. So that's why it didn't just flip upside down like it needed one more nail on it. It's supposed to be that way. And then you see over to the left of that little altar, you see it looks like just a big metal or a big stone column. Uh, It's got a little metal thing around it. That column is what they would have chained prisoners to. Would have been a chain around that column. Probably would have gone all the way up. Chain around there and then chain to the prisoner so that he's locked up down in this bottom, uh, bottom cell. So go to the next picture. This next picture is if you just sort of turn around in that very same room. And the two circles on those lights or so you just see that's the same light. Okay, so you turn around from that altar and you see that picture on the left and then if you sort of turn to your right again, you see this little door. And the best I can understand, that door down there, however old it is, on the other side of that door is the sewage system. And that door is there because think about this, right? You're Romans, right? And you've got this prison deal and you've got these guys down there. Probably a lot of guys dying down in that dark, nasty hole. Well, who wants to be the guard that gets let down a rope into the hole in the ground and gets the dead body and tries to get it up that little skinny hole? Nobody wanted to do that. So you got this nice little door there, and you open the door and throw the body out in the sewage, close the door back up. Easy. So that's what that door on the right is from. So I think, best I can figure, about 2009 they did some, uh, like I said, some restoration or some work on this area. And so these next pictures are actually the same room. And I know it looks a little bit different, but you see the hole in the floor on that picture on the left. That's the same little spring with the, the concrete that had been placed on top removed. And that very simple altar replaced what used to be there. And you see the hole in the ceiling in both pictures. Okay, That's the manhole cover in the grate that they would have let these guys down. And you see the column right there. Doesn't have the big thing around it anymore. Just shows the column that they would have chained these guys to. And then put this last picture up. And I just marked some things so you can kind of see. I, I really think this is the same room after they've done some restorations. You've got the exact same plaque. You've got the exact same pillar. You've got the exact same hole in the wall. And the altar's in the same spot. And so many, many tourists have seen that picture on the left. And then if you would have been there in Paul's day, it probably would have looked more like this picture on the right. Now, All these pictures are taken with the benefit of lights. You see lights down there, electric lights, and flash photography. So it's very easy to see. It's very nice. It was fascinating. I watched some videos of people going on some tours of these, and I was going to show them to you, but there's no point because it's dark. 
can't see anything. It's just some guy walking in a cave. For all I know, he's walking around in one of our Sunday school rooms with the light off and telling you, oh, look, this is right in front of you, and here's this. It's just it's very, very dark down there. So I just want you to picture these conditions, okay? Paul has been arrested again. And previously, he's been in house arrest, meaning he lived in a home, and he had to stay there, and he couldn't leave. And he gets released from that, and he gets to go on about his business. But now he's arrested a second time, and he's down in the bottom of this hole. And it used to be a cistern, and now it's just a hole in the ground. And uh, part of this final portrait that you see is he's alone in a cold dungeon, and he's chained like a common prisoner. And it's dark down there. And it's probably freezing cold down there. It's probably very damp. And in those pictures, in the, the pre-restoration or post-restoration pictures, I didn't see any facilities down there, if you know what I'm saying. It's just a hole in the ground. And you're chained down there. Who knows who else is down there with you? And here's one thing to keep in mind. I mentioned this last week. The Romans did not use incarceration at this point in history they didn't use incarceration as punishment that was just kind of why would you do that if they wanted to punish somebody one option would be that they would kill them another option would be that they would put them into some sort of forced labor do something productive if you're healthy enough to do that Um, a third option would be house arrest if you weren't that bad of a guy and they weren't really concerned about you they could put you under house arrest uh, but that was, you're, you're on your own. They're not taking care of you. You're, you're on your own to live. The final option would be that they would hold you in a prison like this one until they got ready to kill you. And this prison, by all historical accounts, that's what they used it for. This was not like they're locking people up for life in that hole. It's like, we're going to lock you up for a while here because pretty soon we're going to kill you. And so if you go back to that timeline, just real quick, put that timeline back up. As you piece these dates together... He's arrested and he's sent to Rome. He writes 2 Timothy and then he's martyred. All of that falls within about a year. So not like he spent months and months and months and months and months and years and decades locked up in the hole. He's not there for very long. But he's locked up in a dungeon like a common prisoner. And so look at some of these verses with me in uh, 2 Timothy. Chapter 1 verse 16 He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. So we know he's chained up. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. So it's not like he was on house arrest. You could just go over to him. He's in a hole in the ground, and it took some some work for him to find him. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, He's suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and the books and above all the parchments. He wants that cloak because it's cold down there. It's damp. It's, the, the conditions are miserable. It's dark. And um, so he, he's asking for a coat. Final portrait of Paul, okay? He's in a cold dungeon, chained like a prisoner. Next idea is that his friends have deserted him and his enemies have hurt him. And this is, this is one of the sadder parts. Okay? It's sad to be in a dark dungeon, but this is, this is painful as well. 
2 Timothy 1.15. He says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Everybody turned away. Tradition is telling us that after he got released from house arrest, he went back into Asia Minor and he's preaching, and that's where he got arrested again. And so whatever happened, he's saying, look, these, these people betrayed me. They turned their back on me. It's not just that his enemies did it, but it's that people who used to be his friends have turned their back on him. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I listened to a sermon this week that was about these verses right here, and I had listened to it before. It's one of my favorite sermons, and the guy just talks about some of these, these names. Demas, in love with the present world. And he went to Thessalonica. That's not a lot of detail. Did he go for a job? Did he go for a woman? Did he go because he just got upset with Paul and he got tired of the mission? We don't know. But Paul's description of it is that he's in love with this world. And then he talks about Titus goes to Dalmatia. Titus was one of his friends. He wrote a letter to him, and it was a very friendly letter. We're going to talk about it next week. It wasn't that Titus got mad at him or bailed on him. It's that Titus had work to do. He had a ministry to fulfill. But that meant that Paul's left all alone. Luke alone is with me. So his friends have deserted him. Look over at chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. We don't know all the details of this either, but you remember there was one story where Paul went to a town and uh, Demetrius the silversmith, I believe it was in Ephesus, got mad at Paul because no one was buying his little gods anymore because they were all worshiping Jesus. And he led this big revolt against Paul. And so is this something similar where Alexander the coppersmith did that? We don't know, but his enemies are, are hurting him. The third thing when you're trying to figure out Paul's state of mind and this final picture of him is that he knew his life and his ministry were over, both. Death was imminent, okay? This is not like house arrest where Paul's writing and he's saying things like, I think I'm going to come. I'm making plans for another mission trip. I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go all these different places. He knows because of the prison that he's in, this is it. There is no walking out of this place. They pull you out of that hole and they kill you or they throw you out the side door in the bottom. That's the two ways you leave. You go to your death or you die down here and they toss you out into the sewer. And so he knows that. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. You remember when he wrote to the church in Philippi and he said, uh, it's one of his prison letters, he was in prison but not this kind of prison. And he said to them things like, if I die and I depart, I go to be with Jesus and that's good. But if I stay, then that's to your benefit because I can encourage you and we can work together and we can serve together. And he says, I'm hard-pressed. Which one would be better, die and go to Jesus or stay here and be with you? I don't know. Both have, have, have good things about them. Here, there's no possibility of, Timothy, I might get to come see you again. It's just, this is it. I'm being poured out and... This is the end. He knows that. 
Time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He has completely turned his thoughts in his own life from things in this world to the next life, to eternity. That's where his focus is now at. He knows this is the end. Um, Last thing is this. He's very lonely. We know that he's cold. He asked for a coat. So he asked for his cloak and he asked for his books. Which is really interesting to me. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 13. We read this a second ago. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. A lot of debate about what are the books and the parchments. And more than likely, some of those are Scripture, copies of Scripture that he owned. And he wants Timothy to bring them to him so that he can study them uh, in his final days. But it's probably more than that because he talks about books, plural, and parchments, plural, and seems to make a distinction. When I think about somebody on death row, I don't think about somebody who's saying, I want to study. I want to read the word. I want to read a commentary. I think about somebody who just sort of says, this is it, this is it, this is the end. Nothing else. I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. What's the point in spending time studying or reading? But for Paul, he understood that the word of God is living and active and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. He understood. He tells Timothy in this very, this very letter that it's breathed out by God. It's the very words of God. So he doesn't just sit in this hole talking to God and asking for God to give him some kind of vision or tell him something or help him. He's saying, I want to read the Bible. Down to my very last moment, I want to read it. I want to study it. I want to think about it. I want to meditate on it. So bring the books and bring the parchments. Um, I started to give you an outline to this book, and then I looked and found several different ones and kind of worked on one of my own, and then I just said, you know, this is really not a book you outline. This is not like the, uh, the book of Romans, the epistle to the church in Rome, where he sat down and he's systematically laying things out. This is a guy who knows he's days, weeks away from dying, and he's writing to one of his very dearest friends. And he's just sort of pouring his heart out. And when you read something like that, um, you read the words of a dying man. I hate to say it carries more weight than other things that Paul wrote, but it carries, let's just say, a different kind of weight. Right? Um, I read a while back a book that Billy Graham wrote. It's the last book he wrote called Nearing Home. And uh, I'll be honest with you, he's not one of my favorite authors. I don't really enjoy reading some of the the books that he's written. But that one was interesting to me because throughout the book, he knows he's going to die really soon. And those are his last thoughts. Those are his last words. Those are the things that are the most important to him when he comes to the end of his life and he can look back with perspective at his ministry and his life and his family and all the things that are important. Those are the things that really stood out to him. And it's fascinating to read that. And that's basically what you have in 2 Timothy. You have a guy who knows this this is the end. It is time for me to depart. Already I'm being poured out. 
This is it. I'm not coming out of this hole alive. Or if I do, I'm going straight to my death. And these are the things that he says to one of his most dear friends. And so just a couple of things I pulled out that I wanted you to notice from this letter. One is the importance of generational faith. And you see it first in a family context. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I'm reminded, he's writing to Timothy, I, Paul, am reminded of your, Timothy's, your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And one of the things he's reflecting on here is how the faith gets passed down from one generation to the next. That's how it's supposed to work. Grandma gives it to mom, gives it to son, just pass it down one generation at a time. And so he talks about generational faith in a family context. And then in chapter 2, this is interesting as well, he talks about generational faith in a church context. There's a sense in which your family, God designed things to work so that you pass the faith down that way, but the church does the same thing. And so in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you got Paul, I gave it to you, Timothy, and you're going to give it to faithful men and they're going to give it to others. You're just going to pass it down. And when you pass it down, you're not just passing down facts, but you're passing on the ability to pass it down. You've got to teach them the gospel, but you've also got to teach them how to teach the gospel. And you do that in your family and you do that in your church. And that's how the gospel gets passed down. It's a generational thing from one generation to the next. It happens in your family. It happens in your church. The next thing I I gave you is just a group of passages. And I just called them gospel meditations. And uh, I'm just going to let you fill in these blanks. And we're going to read some of these. We won't read all of them. We'll read some of them. This is, again, these are the thoughts... These are the reflections of a man who knows this is it. These are his last words. The things that are most important that he wants to tell Timothy. He knows this is the last chance I'm going to get to say anything to Timothy. These are the things that I want to tell him. And so look what he says about the grace of God in chapter 1 verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I just want you to notice in that meditation on the grace of God, 
This is a high view of the grace of God. This is not Paul saying to Timothy, I want you to remember that you were the one who you prayed this prayer and I want you to remember you've done this and you've done this. and you've. It's not about Timothy, it's about what God's done for Timothy. And so he says things like, God called you, Timothy. That was according to his own purpose. Not according to what you've done, but according to his own purpose. And it says, his grace was so certain, it was almost as if he gave it to you before the ages began. Way back from before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to give you this grace, and it was so certain, it was as if he gave it to you back then. But, he says, it was made manifest through Jesus. He came. He abolished death. It wasn't anything you did. He did it. He brought life. He appointed me. I'm not ashamed. I know the one I believe in, and I believe that Paul is a good enough Christian to hang on to the end. Nope. I believe that because I trust in him, he can guard what he's given me. This grace and this ministry. He's the one that's going to guard it until the day. Follow this pattern that you've heard from me. And you're going to do that because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. All of these things, he's talking about the grace of God. Second meditation is about ministry, gospel ministry. I'll let you read that one. He compares, and when I say gospel ministry, one clarification. He's not talking only about pastors. He's talking about anybody who serves Jesus Christ. Okay? Yes, Timothy's a pastor, but anyone who serves in any capacity, he compares gospel ministry to being a soldier, to being an athlete, to being a farmer, and it's worth you taking time to read through and to think about, to meditate on. He talks about the faithfulness of Christ. That's another one I'll let you read, chapter 2. He talks about human depravity in chapter 3, and this one's a good contrast for what we read in chapter 1. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's a guy who understood human nature. And he had seen it. He'd seen it in the men who dragged him out of town and stoned him in Lystra, right? He'd seen it in Demas who abandoned him because he was in love with this present world. And he'd also seen it in himself who stood by and held the cloaks of men who were stoning Christians and who went home to home and drug Christians out of their home and sent them off to prison. Paul has no illusions that this is just a problem out there. He clearly understood it's a problem in here. But my point is, coming to the end of his life, he's reflecting on things. He understands human nature really well. There's something in us that's just broken and twisted and busted because of sin. And that's how it plays out. So he talks about depravity. He talks about the function of Scripture. Chapter 3. This is one of the more familiar passages 
We'll read this one quickly. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. He talks about the importance of preaching the word, teaching the word. That's in chapter 4, 1 to 5. I'll let you read that one. It's a great one, though. Preach the word. That's a good one if you're a pastor, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you're passing down the faith to the next generation, there's something in there for you. So read that one. He talks about assurance in death. He's not fearful. He's not afraid. He knows it's the end, but he's not, he's not shaking. He's not upset. And I, just one word. 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. Okay, we already read it. Look at it real quickly. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That verse gets applied to a lot of people that it doesn't need to be applied to. In life situations, in funerals, in all sorts of settings, we read this verse. I've finished, finished the, the race. I've kept the faith. The crown of life is laid up for me. And it certainly should be applied to some people. But I'm just telling you, Paul's talking about himself here. And you think about what Paul's gone through and what he's going through and what he's done for the Lord and how he served the Lord. I'm not saying you have to be Paul for this to be read at your funeral. I'm just saying I've been to a lot of funerals where I've heard that read and I've thought, all they did is die. They didn't finish anything. I'm not even sure they started anything. Kept the faith. There's no sign of, of faith in their life. Why are you reading this verse? I think we apply it too easily sometimes. But it's a great meditation on assurance for the one who's following Christ. The last one is the power of the gospel. And I just want to look at two verses. This one is, is worth thinking about as well. Look what he says in 4.11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What I'm saying to you in that one single verse is that the gospel is powerful to heal broken relationships. Because there was a point in time when Paul got ready to go on a mission trip with his best friend Barnabas. And they had such a big blow-up about Mark that they split up. And Paul said, there is no way I'm going on a mission trip with that kid. If he's going, I'm out. You take him and go. This massive split in the very first missionary team breaks up because of Mark. And Paul doesn't want anything to do with him. And now at the end of his life, we don't know how they were reconciled or when that happened, but we know that his tune has changed, and he says, if you can bring anybody with you to see me, I'd really like it if you could bring Mark. He's useful to me. 
Paul gave him a second chance. He was mad at him. He didn't want to go on that second trip with him. But eventually he came to realize, I got I to move on. I can't hold a grudge about that. I've been forgiven much. I need to be a forgiving person. And he forgave Mark. And then I want you to look over on, the, on my Bible. It's the other page. Look at verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. Now, in verse 11, he says, right now, Luke is with me. But in verse 16, he says, my first defense, when I had my first trial, my first hearing, nobody showed up. Nobody came. You say, well, where was Luke? I don't know. Maybe Luke was sick. Maybe Luke was on a mission trip. Maybe Luke was doing something. Maybe Luke was busy. Maybe Luke bailed on him. We don't know. But we know that at this first hearing, he says, nobody came. I was all alone. There's a lot of Christians who would experience that, and they would never get over all of their so-called friends not showing up. They'd say, oh, I see. I thought you were my friend. You didn't show up. No one showed up. I thought you were my friend. And Paul says, no one showed up, but he, he didn't hold that against Luke. And he's glad that Luke is with him, and he wants Mark to come with him. And I'm saying to you, when you think about those verses, I want you to reflect on, meditate on the power of the gospel to heal relationships. And when you have been forgiven much because of the gospel truths about Jesus Christ, it should make you a forgiving person. And that happened in Paul's life, happened with Mark and happened with Luke. Last thing I want you to see is this, really simple. Paul has a very strong emphasis on the gospel in this last letter. And that's not surprising, I don't think. He's writing to his protege. He's writing to a pastor. And he knows this is my last chance to say something to this guy. And it's almost like he's saying, I you need to keep the main thing the main thing. Look, in the last letter, last letter I gave you all sorts of instructions about leaders in the church and how church ought to work and how you do this in the church, all these details, all those things are important. But this is the last thing I get to say to you. I'm not going to get in the weeds about details. I'm telling you, keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is the gospel. And he tells him, you can look these verses up. I want you to guard the gospel, meaning you're going to have to fight for it. People are going to come and try to twist it and change it, and you're going to have to guard it. You're going to have to be active in that. You're going to have to suffer for it. You're going to have to endure in it. It's going to be part of your life, and you're going to continue in it day after day, week after week. And then he, he calls him to preach the gospel. You can look those verses up later. Um, but the point there in all of those is he wants Timothy to keep the main thing the main thing. So let's do this. Let's end with prayer. And um, pray for a couple of things as we close Second Timothy. Pray that God would... Help us to be a church and to be families that pass down the faith from generation to generation. Okay? That's one thing I want you to pray about. God, help my family and help my church. Help us to pass the gospel generation to generation just like you see in 2 Timothy. And then also help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to guard the gospel. Help us to suffer for it if we need to. Help us to endure in the gospel. Help us to preach the gospel. And you've got all those verses, you've got all those things on your outline. So I'm going to give you two minutes to pray for those two things, and then uh, I'll close us in prayer.